Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Alice Tomlinson. Alice, former roommate from almost a quarter of a century ago. <laughs> oh, God, you, yeah. You were a wee bairn. It's great yeah, to see you. younger days. And you, Toby. <laughs> great to see you. And tell me what's occupying your mind at the moment, what you're thinking about or working on. Or both? So work-wise, my last few weeks have been quite dominated by the sound design for this documentary feature film that I'm working on, which has been a big thing for me because it's the first, my first kind of foray into the film world. And I've kind of dived in with a co-directed film about a nun who I photographed a few years ago for my photographic project, Ex Photo. So that's been taking up a lot of time. I've been going to a kind of post-production sound suite. It's been very nice, actually, because it's all quite fancy there. So you kind of sit in a big comfy sofa and they've got the big projection screen screen, and they have, you know, snacks and drinks on tap. So, you know, feel kind of like a swanky director for about two hours before you go back to reality. And then um, other things today, I uh, had a not particularly exciting but quite productive physio session because I actually tore my calf muscle playing netball about six weeks ago, which was really painful. Um, and I've been frustrated because I've not been able to do much activity since. And today I was allowed to do a bit of jumping. And I think I kind of turned into a bit of nutter because I haven't been jumping around like I normally do for weeks. And I was kind of leaping around. And I called Nick, my partner, afterwards. And he's like, why are you in such a good mood? And I said, oh, because I've been able to. I've been jumping. <laughs> he was like, you're very springy, the physio. I was like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> You had a serious netball injury a few years ago, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to bang on about netball too much because I seem to lead every conversation I have back to netball. But yeah, I've I've broken um, both ankles. But one was playing netball, one was doing a um, unsuccessful somersault. Uh, yeah, which wasn't my finest moment. And then I've broken my finger and my wrist as well. So yeah, I've had a few injuries over the years. Of those, I imagine the broken finger would be the most common in netball. It's pretty common, but it's also the most ugly because um, it look. I basically got a completely. I can't bend my f- finger at all. It's like <laughs> a right angle, which I forget about, and then I look down sometimes, and I'm like, oh, "It's not very pretty." But never mind. You know, these are some of the sacrifices we make. So, getting back to the film, yeah. you're world-renowned and justly so, so a brilliant photographer. What's it like moving to the moving screen as it were yeah well it's been it's been hard in many ways I mean I I realize as well that being you know having some kind of uh, reputation I suppose in the photography world doesn't necessarily help in terms of the film world so they're actually very they're very separate although the skill set is obviously there's lots of crossovers there in terms of storytelling and well how you how you view life and how you you know narrate what you're seeing there's obviously kind of very creative crossovers but in terms of the world and who I know in the photo world and who I know in the film world they're very separate so being a photographer hasn't really kind of aided my move into the film world Um, but it's also been a real challenge for me because I'm so used to working very much on my own on my Mm -hmm. long-term projects being very independent doing everything my way I suppose and with this film, surely I, not, Alice. Well, I, I know, it's cannot, hard to, it's hard to believe. believe. Are you saying that you're a bit of a bossy boots? Well, you know, occasionally, occasionally. <laughs> Apparently, I've been like it from childhood, and actually, <laughs> Mum at the weekend I, said I was I was quite an odd child and very bossy, and I was like, oh, well, a lot. when we were roommates, you were definitely not bossy. No, uh, well, that's because it was your your apartment, though. So <laughs> I wasn't really allowed. Anyway, so, anyway yes, I imagine I one of the about, about filmmaking that would be different is that it is much more collective, collaborative. Well, it is. That, but it, it has is, a hierarchy yes. still. Seriously, there is, yeah, you're absolutely right. So obviously, I'm working as part of a team, but also, I suppose, what's been challenging for me is that I'm co-directing this film yeah. with Cecile Embleton, who is a young filmmaker who actually I met because she assisted me years ago on my big project Ex Voto. So kind of navigating that relationship has been quite difficult. And also just having two people. I mean, I think when it works really well, our kind of our views on filmmaking, our aesthetics overlap very well. But Mm -hmm. like you say, there is a hierarchy and it's not always um, kind of easy to 
to make compromises, I suppose, for me yeah. anyway. And yeah. of course, in film, that needs to happen. And like you say, you're working with a much bigger team. So I, I'm working with a colorist. I'm working with an editor. I'm working with a, a sound guy. Um, well, there's, there's many of us when you put us all together, even though mm-hmm. the, core, the core team is very small, including the producer. So I guess that's been a hard kind of adjustment for me to make. And as a result, the, we're working on, right on the final edit now. And there are, a few scenes or a few cuts that I would have done differently. Um, but that's the nature of collaboration, I guess, you know, having to make these certain compromises. Now, without wanting to engage in spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> how much can you tell us about this project and how it relates to earlier work? Well, it relates really directly to my major kind of personal project, which was my big first first project that I really kind of committed to um, in an emotional way, in a financial way, kind of psychologically, because I've been working as a commercial photographer for many years and I was beginning to feel a bit kind of tainted about that life and I wasn't enjoying photography like I used to. So I decided to embark on this big new project and really put everything into a kind of research-based personal project, which was about pilgrimage. And the whole film came out of a photograph I took, which was a portrait of a nun called Vera, who I met when I was working on my project Ex Voto. So really the genesis of the film is is a photograph. That was how it was born. Mm-hmm. That was how that relationship was born. And also that's how the aesthetic of that photograph, which was all, well, that whole project was shot on a large format camera, which is an old fashioned plate camera and in black and white. And that aesthetic, although we've shot, you know, we're not shooting on film for the film, um, it, but definitely that kind of sense of um, almost purity and simplicity and um, melancholy in some ways has carried into the film. So there's definitely a relationship there that's been continued from photography, from still image into moving image. And it reminds me of some of Frederick Wiseman's Mm. films i've had the great privilege of watching it Uh, i'm a huge fan of wiseman's and uh, knew him a little bit i uh, in the the way in which and in this case in the case of wiseman it's because they're older but there's a sort of washed out quality um, that is there that is incredibly powerful i think you mean washed out how it how it looks or the characters yeah, or yeah looks. yeah um yeah certainly I mean yeah I don't want to give away too much but obviously the yeah the majority of the film um it's 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 in monochrome and that's how it was kind of born the aesthetic of the film so we move through a lot of the film is based in these kind of shadowy um yeah austere corridors of the convent so basically the the film follows the story of this orthodox nun called Vera. And she's had a very interesting and quite difficult background. Um, so we're trying to kind of balance us telling, us hearing rather about her past and us then being with her in her struggles in the present and then looking towards her future. Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, Wiseman is is an incredible um, I think I, the last film I saw, he did the film about the National Portrait Gallery. He did a documentary. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I took, I suppose my influence was quite wide. So it was, there were obviously um, documentary filmmakers who have influenced me over the years, but I was also very influenced by kind of Eastern European filmmakers and Russian filmmakers like Tarkovsky and Balatar and, more recently, I really loved the film Ida about a young Polish nun um, directed by, I think he's called Pawkowski. I never know how to pronounce his name. So I've got all these influences as well as the photography influences. Um, but for me, I, it's funny because I, I kind of look back on this film and it's been six years. So it's felt like this huge kind of journey. Oh, cats appeared. <laughs> um, uh, so it's felt like, yeah, it's been a very long process, I suppose. And it's taken a long time as well in the filmmaking process to figure out what is this film about and what are we trying to say? And that's something that I already am aware of in my 
photographic projects and I realise that can take many many years often um, but what we've been gifted with with this film is an incredible woman and a kind of captivating protagonist and I think when I first met her that was what drove me to pursue a film because I felt almost that I wasn't I could only tell so much about her life through a still image and obviously this being a feature length doc we've got you know 90 minutes to dig deeper and the longer we spent with her in this convent in Belarus, obviously the more was uncovered and the more we found out about her life. Um, and then the trust, you know, the trust needed to be there and that took time. So it's been hard at times, but I kind of look back and I think, wow, I can't believe I spent that long in a, you know, in a convent in Belarus. And we've come up with something that, you know, I hope kind of does her incredible life some some justice. And is she involved in the post-production or not? So she's not involved in the post-production. Um, you mean the protagonist, Vera? Yes. Yeah. So we, we've actually been, I mean, there's obviously certain ethics of kind of documentary filmmaking that you need to be aware of um, in terms of you're told, you know, not to become too close or emotionally connected with the people you're filming. Um, and she has seen bits as we've gone along, but actually... I think because she does really trust us as directors, she's never pushed us to show her anything. And it was quite recent, recently that I saw her in actually in Dortmund in Germany a couple of months ago because we had to record some extra sound. And it was quite a nerve wracking moment because we showed her the, the final cut, or oh, the near final cut okay. for the first time. Yeah. And she'd seen clips, she'd seen bits and she'd had to do some re-recording of sound. So she had some sense of what we were making but she hadn't seen mm. it in its entirety so it did feel like a big deal and it was I was quite anxious about it and actually she she kind of there were moments where she showed great kind of warmth where she really laughed and then she at the end she seemed she she wasn't emotional but she I think it was a very you know it's an odd experience seeing your life played out on screen over 90 minutes and she wasn't that happy with how she was portrayed right at the end, which was something we'd been discussing. So actually we have made a very, very small adjustment right at the end, which I think is more, it's more of a mirror on actually kind of her future. And it's a little bit more okay. kind of hopeful. So that's really been her only involvement in the creative process, but also there was absolutely no pressure on her side for us to make any changes she said mm. I understand if this is how you want the ending to be then I absolutely accept that and I understand it but I think also because her where she is now is she's in quite a kind of raw place and when she looked at when we began filming six years ago she said that felt like a different person to her so I think in a sense she's so close to her kind of lived experience in the present that it was very hard mm -hmm. for her to see the current struggles, whereas she was able to detach herself more from from past difficulties, I suppose. Um, but that's as far as her kind of creative involvement has, right. has gone. But we've been in touch with her a lot. And we've obviously, aside yeah. from the filming trips, we've had to do pickups, we've had to do extra bits of sound, as well as just checking in that she's okay. But there's also this kind of aspect of managing her, in a sense, on a personal level, because we're starting to apply for festivals and the reality is it's a it's a you know it's a pretty arty black and white doc film you know it's not gonna rock up it's very unlikely it's gonna rock up on big streaming channels or Netflix and and at one point we were a bit worried that she perhaps thought that she was not going to become a movie star because she's bright she doesn't she's not gonna think that but I kind of worried that she at one point she thought this might be her gateway to a kind of new life um and the reality is it's probably going to show it. Well, hopefully it will get theatre release and it will be at cinemas, but it's probably not going to change her life dramatically. So we have to also kind of almost manage her expectations. But I understand you're already filling out contracts for I'm a nun, get me out of here. <laughs> I don't. Oh, God. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Yeah, actually they got um, that, that programme. I don't know if you... You saw it at all, but this year they controversially had Nigel Farage, and it got the uh, lowest, the lowest um, ratings it's ever had. So, 
There you go. But yeah, no, no, maybe she's got a whole other career in reality TV. Ahead There's of her. always hope. Nigel Farage, <laughs> uh, folks, is a far right yeah. complete failure as a politician. He never wins elections no. on the British mainland, or he was a member of the European Parliament. But he was one of the presiding monsters of Brexit, the vote. Yeah, he was a big proponent of Brexit. And although he's never been in power, I think a lot of his very um, kind of bad influence, you know, that he did unfortunately have quite a a big impact on how people voted in the referendum. Yeah, Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So anyway, and he's just been on this reality show called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Mm. Well, we could do a whole load of them. Nuns on the Run, um, what, Sister sister Act 4 or something. I mean, there is also a kind of proliferation of nun films, it seems, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think I think also what's happening is that people, I mean, aside from the kind of joke films, that there is something about the film, I hope, that connects with the kind of human condition in you know, in in a lot on a larger scale. Oh, so sure. it's not, although it's a film about a nun, it's not a film about religion. Not at all, really. And you see, there are a lot of other characters in it. Yeah, yeah, particularly yeah. the men. So there are these men who kind of um, are housed in a rehabilitation centre that's part of the convent in the countryside in Belarus, mm-hmm. and they they're these kind of secondary characters, but they play a big role in how the how the film unfolds and also how Vera feels about herself and and community as well yeah and family scenes that are very... yeah 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 anyway don't want to give away too yes. much but no it's a it, it, as Tom Cruise said when asked by the BBC when he was filming War of the Worlds what he thought of H.G. Wells original novel it's a page turner <laughs> and even though well... you're directly turning pages when you're watching a film it is. I've been fortunate enough to see it in a slightly earlier so incarnation. Good. I mean, um, it's a bit of a slow burner. It's not, you know, a laugh a minute action movie. But I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <It laughs> there's something there that keeps I people think it's wonder- I think it's wonderful. I think Thank it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, so what took you, if we go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, yeah. to the votive? What was it that got you interested in this story to- all the time ago? To so to the ex voto project, which was yeah my first big kind of long term yeah. project. Well, it's I, it's it's hard to say exactly because I mean I wasn't brought up at all in any kind of religious background. In fact, I'd say my parents were pretty strong atheists. So the only church time I ever really went to churches was you know being dragged around when we were on like camping trips in France or something. Um, but there was definitely something about the kind of quiet spaces and this idea of ritual and the iconography that I was interested in from a young age. Um, And I think I'm quite interested, it seems, in my photography, in documenting kind of people and and cultures that are not familiar to my own, to my own experience. So documenting the experience of others in in settings and in locations and places that I don't always... I don't always feel I fit into. Um, So I suppose in that respect, my photography is a lot about discovery. And of course, that discovery then becomes kind of reflective as you begin to discover things about yourself as you're discovering things about other people. So it was it was quite strange because I remember when I first I actually saw a film called Lourdes, which is a brilliant film about the big pilgrimage site, Catholic pilgrimage site in the south of France called Lourdes, which is very well known. Um, and this film really kind of drew me in. There was something, I mean, it's a, it's a fiction film. It's by a director called, a female director called Jessica Hausner. And, um, there was something about this sense of hope there, because a lot of people go to Lourdes because there are, um, this idea that you can be miraculously healed, for instance, by the, yeah. the water there. I mean, it's got a very kind of long, uh, long history and people have been going since the 1850s, but there was this, sense of kind of otherworldliness when I watch this film and I can be quite impulsive and I actually remember saying to my mum oh I've decided to put myself on a on a pilgrim package tour to Lourdes and she was like oh what you know why why do you want to go there um because one side of Lourdes as well and one side of the whole pilgrimage experience is this extremely tacky kind of garish 
um, aspect of it. So I kind of turned up there and it was a bit bizarre because I was staying in this very um, kind of clinical hotel. It seemed like it was me and thousands of kind of Portuguese grannies. Um, but then you go out and there's Ave Maria playing everywhere and there's all these shops selling trinkets and, you know, six foot kind of glow in the dark statues of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. And and it's a bit, it reminded me a bit of Vegas, actually, in a weird kind of way. It's a bit like the kind of Catholic Vegas or Disneyland or something like that. So I really wasn't sure what I was doing there when I first went and the pictures weren't very good that I took and I felt like I was an outsider and I really started thinking how am I ever going to connect with the people in the place here and also just really questioning what am I what am I doing here was this such a good idea um and I actually went back over many many years and as I kept returning I kept finding I kind of kept discovering different aspects of the pilgrimage experience I suppose so um I became very interested in this sense of of nature obviously as a kind of healing tool as well and how that was very much entwined in the overall experience and how these very kind of physical gestures also like the the being in the water and the religious healing from the water touching the stone um all these kind of motifs in the natural landscape became part of the bigger pilgrimage experience and that's when I started enjoying being there because I was on my own a lot there and actually I would I suppose I'm a very kind of urban person in that I've lived in a city pretty much all my life and I really enjoyed the quieter moments there um, that were more kind of meditative where you could get time to think and I wasn't thinking about religion but I was thinking about something and really there was this sense of kind of stillness that was very appealing to me so the project really only really took shape once I realized that they're almost needed to be part of my experience in my photographs. Um, and that's when it felt like a bit of a breakthrough because I moved from colour to black and white. So until I moved into black and white, I'd been photographing, I guess, at kind of more of a distance. And the, they were nice images, but they were more like something you'd find in a travel magazine or an editorial piece. And then once I started actually talking to people, And I also did an MA in anthropology of pilgrimage that obviously really helped and kind of enriched how I felt about the pilgrimage experience. Um, Everything kind of came together and I was working in this very slow and considered way. Um, And I was able to then discover the kind of way I wanted to portray this experience, which was this sense of kind of stepping into a different time. So the project has a lot of portraits of pilgrims there but it also has still lives, like you mentioned, of, of the votive, of the offerings that are left behind, the ex-votos, which can be very simple kind of gestures and objects like um, a piece of ribbon wrapped around a twig or a little photograph hidden under a stone or a cross etched onto a rock. So all these kind of um, emblems or signifiers that are left in the landscape that are that are kind of not relics exactly, but they're signifiers of someone's very individual experience in these sites. Um, so that's when the project really began to work, I suppose. It, but it was, again, it was many years. It was five, six years from start to finish. And it was really only the last two years um, that I felt that I was actually making interesting pictures. One of the things I've always wanted is for you to catalogue, I don't know if you've ever done any of this, the, the, some of the rituals surrounding the Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Because No, I mean, I haven't, but obviously that would, yeah. I, I was reminded of yeah. this recently because it's just happened, El Dia de los Muertos, and the Mexican Cultural Centre is just down the road from me. I hope you and Nick will come and stay. I have a spare oh, room with an ensuite. And the Mexican restaurant inside the Cultural Centre is incredible. But uh, they had a Day of the Dead thing. And, of course, there were Mexicans around the block throughout the couple of months of this, but Mm. also quite a lot of Spaniards. And I went with a couple of Spanish gals I know. And (laughs) the first half of it is full of, if you like, official Mexican Day Mm -hmm. of the Dead reckoning, which is wonderful. You know, it's the Virgen de Guadalupe. It's... Uh, the body of Christ, it's magnificent. 
mm. artisanal work, cloth, scarves, mm. pictures. But the other part, which is what I'm more used to from living in Mexico, is these shrines to the dead include their favorite things. So in amongst the Virgen de Guadalupe, there will be a packet of Marlboro and a Coke can. <laughs> yeah, I saw this actually when I was in Ireland because the project also went to Ireland and people would leave at um, at this place called Balivorni where people would kind of do the rounds with their rosaries and um, they would leave things that they wanted to um, kind of show, have you know, have penance for or some things that they felt guilty about in their lives. And um, you would find a little bit like that. You, the, one of the things I found, for instance, was um, a parking ticket. So someone, <laughs> had, <laughs> yeah, left a parking ticket um, amongst library, the offerings. Library yeah. finds, yeah. Well, yeah. this is this is very much what mattered to those who have mm. gone. And yes, very. There's personal. the religious bit. There's the folkloric bit, and then there's the everyday physical pleasures bit. You know, and I, yeah. I really think the combination. The syntagmatic function is incredible, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it, it's not official Mexican culture. <laughs> so I but, said to my friends, as they but maybe it's the real side to it in a way. Well, as we made our way through, I said, look, this is all beautiful and amazing. And these are great artists and it's wonderfully folkloric, but there's another bit to this. Yeah. Uh, well, that we're not sounds, really yeah. seeing, which is what the popular classes produce. Yeah. It's all of this plus crass commercial yes. culture which really mm -hmm. matters too you know? mm. and i just think you'd be a wonderful recorder of that oh that sounds so amazing could you um tell us a little bit about the books you've done Alice? yeah contain some of uh, your work both of the kind we've just been discussing but also of other kinds so I've got three kind of monographs, I suppose, out, which are the three books that just contain my work as opposed to uh, group projects I've worked on. So there was a book of the pilgrimage work called Ex Voto, and that was my first, I suppose, my first kind of proper book, if you'd like. I'd done a little book before. I don't remember if you have a copy called Following Broadway from when I was living in New York and I walked endlessly the length of Broadway photographing people along the way. And that was a much smaller kind of project and production and I suppose Ex Voto which is published by a publisher called Ghost Books who are an independent photo book publishers based in London who um, produce yeah very very beautifully printed books um, they they published Ex Voto and then my second book was actually published during the pandemic and that was self-published um, thanks to Nick as well who did the design that was called Lost Summer and that was a project I did about um, teenagers in London in North London who had had well they'd had everything cancelled their lives were put on hold in many ways but I photographed um, 44 teenagers over three months all dressed up in what they would have worn to the prom the prom that got cancelled oh yeah it's very it's very I think it's quite a kind of moving body of work and there's a there's a, obviously a kind of sadness um to the portraits but there is also a great sense of kind of resilience from them um yes. and they were very strong and much stronger than I kind of imagined I would have been in their situations and I photographed them all in the only kind of outdoor spaces they had access to because we were still in and out of lockdown. This was in 2020. So if they had a garden, I would photograph them in their gardens and the, the girls would be, often the young girls would be in like kind of beautiful like ball gowns or a dress that their mum had worn and the boys would be in either kind of slightly oversized suits or kind of tuxedos. Um, if they had a garden, I photographed there. Um, and if they didn't have any outdoor space, I would photograph them in local parks. So the kind of outdoor space became this almost what well, it was. It was this kind of democratic space, wasn't it? That was used during the lockdowns and it formed a kind of backdrop. It was almost like a, a kind of natural studio for the portrait. So that was my, that was my second book. Um, and it shows this kind of sense, I think of the loss, but also the longing of these teenagers to get back to a, a kind of normal, if you like, life. Mm -hmm. And I really love getting to know them all. Cause I mean, you know, it was quite, in some ways it's quite a, brief encounter these these kind of collaborative portraits that you sure. do but so they loved being photographed by this camera because they were so used to selfies and 
mobile kind of photography that when I turned up with this giant camera on a tripod and then had to put a cloak over my head and they were really fascinated by the process, which was which was really lovely to see. And there was a real defiance to how they were dealing with the whole situation. So that was my second book. And then my most recent book that was published last year is called uh, Lisolani, which is Italian uh, for the Islanders. And this is a book that was published. I, I spent two years traveling around Sicily and Sardinia, photographing traditional costumes and masks and rituals um, in very small, often very small villages on these islands. So some of the, yes, again, there's this kind of um, sense of performance there, ritual, they're quite kind of folkloric often in origin. Um, and that involved travel, yeah, traveling around on a kind of road trip, I suppose, around these islands and photographing um, the locals who often dressed up in these costumes to mark a particular, again, it kind of comes back to a lot of the time, the religion mark a particular day that was significant in the, in the Christian calendar. But other costumes were much more linked to um, kind of rural life and the land, but also this pull between, you know, good and evil and um, kind of who has the power in that relationship. So that I suppose it's kind of about identity, but also about this cycle of life and the seasons, because a lot of these costumes also and the masks have kind of quite deep, you know, pagan connections. Um, and some of them are just absolutely incredible. A lot of the costumes are, are handmade. They've been passed down by their grandparents and they're treated as these extremely kind of treasured objects. Um, so I felt very privileged to to photograph them. And actually what I was going to do originally was to go for these different days in the calendar, particularly Easter, Setamana Santa, which is Holy Week, um, when a lot of these costumes are used and they the villagers often dress up in them and there's also these kind of theatrical elements of, of dance and singing that that are also brought together for these festivities. But because this was kind of at the end of the pandemic, if you like, um, they, they were still cancelled, these events. So I ended up going with a brilliant woman um, who's a, she's actually a film producer, but she's a fantastic mix of kind of charm and determination. This Italian woman called Giovanna, and she actually got in touch. I did a kind of wish list of the places I'd like to go to. And she got in touch with them all and organized in advance an itinerary for us to visit each village. So they were they would kind of greet us <laughs> each village. They were very excited that a photographer from the UK was coming. Um, and we would get, you know, wonderfully treated like coffees and gelato and amazing lunches. And then we would go out and I would photograph them on um amongst again amongst rocks or on hilltops or by the water so again this kind of merging of, of the landscape and and the person that is really important to the identity of these different festivals um so that was my last project so there's definitely overlapping themes there amongst all of my three books and the last book was also published by Gost. and actually while you were speaking just now, I was thinking there's a, one of the articulations is womanhood or femininity or women. Mm -hmm. In my photographs? Well, not just in what you photograph, mm. though it's certainly there, but not exclusively by any means, but in the people you're mentioning, mm. the, the lady who helps you to find mm. people in Sicily, your co-director, of yeah. the project yeah it's underway I think I work very well on the whole with with other women um so obviously my subjects are you know men and women and actually in Lisolani the islanders it tended to be mostly young men who kind of took part in these oh was festivities it? Mm -hmm. yeah not always but they were it was mostly men um and they'd suddenly you'd kind of turn up and there'd be a young you know 20 year old shepherd looking quite normal in his kind of loungewear. And then 10 minutes later, he'd emerge with like an antler on his head and a sheep's wearing this huge like head to toe kind of sheepskin outfit. And they really kind of transformed themselves into these um, these other characters. So it was very much about role playing. But I think in terms of who I work with, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I don't want to generalise, but there is something about the kind of sensibility and sensitivity perhaps of working as a female team that I really 
that I really enjoy. Mm, mm, Although mm. I've had assistants who have been male and female, so it's certainly not exclusively they're not exclusively traits of womanhood or sisterhood um but i do really enjoy yeah collaborating with women creatively a question about gender and then no need to continue with it do you in terms of gaining access to people's lives Mm. particularly in the case of the belarusian nun but others too do you think there's a gendered element to that, to being able to gain the confidence and work with subjects? Is it easier for you, do you think, to get men to open up because you're a woman or women to open up because you're a woman in terms of the emotional mm. element of the interaction between photographer and subject? I mean, I think at times, um, I mean, my approach is very kind of low key, you know, I mean, um, I'm very sensitive in terms of how I approach people, in terms of how I depict them. Um, I'm quite quiet in terms of how I work. And I'm not saying you can't be like that as a man, but certainly there are genres of photography, particularly, I would say, for instance, street photography that have been famously um, dominated by men and male photographers. And there are certain photographers who I feel are quite, kind of brutal in their approach um and well if you think of paparazzi or sports yeah very male dominated domains oh absolutely but there's even some art photographers who i don't i don't really agree or like how they approach people on the street and i don't like how they portray people but they're very successful in what they do but they're very harsh in terms of how they yeah and in terms of how they represent people and i suppose i'm kind of the opposite of that in some ways but certainly obviously working in a in a convent i wouldn't have been i don't think i would have been able invited to do there. that yeah or no, I yeah I'd be able to do that. as a former roommate alice i'm going oh, to no. you by having ch- cheese and cherry tomatoes you, you're serious ah, the yeah, only thing I'm you just, used to eat in new york well i'm just a bit a bit peckish, a bit peckish. You know, all right to go with your glass of wine I've got the glass of wine <laughs> already, so sorry. Um, uh, but um, on to more serious topics. So <clears throat> when I lived in Mexico City, the first time I lived in the street, a, a cul-de-sac street with a nunnery in it. Okay. And now I live around the corner from a nunnery, which is also a childcare centre. Okay. But both these places were walled enclaves. Mm. And uh, very different context, obviously, Mexico City, Madrid, and yet things with lots in common too. And there was an extraordinary invisibility to the nuns, even though they went out and bought things and did things. Mm. Yeah. In both cases. And in the case of the, the nunnery around the corner from where I am now, because there are children there for childcare, you see normally moms coming to pick them up or drop them off and little people occasionally being waved to or cuddled by the nuns. Mm. But there's a, a really concrete invisibility to them for me. It, yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting because I feel that in some ways there's a really kind of strong status that comes with Mm. being a nun. So you're very visible because of what you wear, obviously. Um, So you you stand out in public. And when I first went to the convent outside of Minsk, it's not, yeah, they're not cloistered nuns. So they, like you say, they kind of go out in public. And first time I kind of went out with Vera. First of all, I was surprised she could drive. She was allowed to drive. Although actually her... (laughs) Uh, uh, that that um, obedience, as they call it, um, not obedience, sorry, that uh, privilege got revoked because she was speed. She got done speeding. So Mother Superior <laughs> banned her from driving. Um, but when we first went out in the car, she was like whizzing along the highway with Motorhead like blaring out. She's really into like Motorhead and Led Zeppelin. Um, and I was just like, this is not how I imagined nuns to live their lives. So I had this very kind of preconceived idea of what a nun's life is. Um, And I think she quite, because she is 
I wouldn't say she's a show off, but there she's quite a dramatic character and she enjoys, you know, when part of her, well, it wasn't an appeal of being a nun, but part of her did definitely enjoy that sense of getting attention in public. So actually she wasn't kind of scurrying around as this kind of um, phantom or invisible figure. She she was very, I think she wore it with pride and she wanted to be noticed actually. And I think she's that's her personality type. She likes being noticed. Other nuns um, I met in the convent would be more, um, much more low-key, much kind of quieter figures. They go around their business, yeah. I suppose. But there was also obviously a very strong kind of hierarchy in the convent. So hierarchy in terms of power and status, but also in terms of um, personality types. So when we used to, we used to eat every day in the dining room with them. And there would be certain nuns who always like wanted to do the readings or would hog the prayer book, you know. And then there would be other nuns who would just sit in the corner, maybe praying on their own and not really wanting to be part of anything larger. Um, but I soon realized that it's actually a pretty radical lifestyle being a nun. Um, it's a lifestyle of extremes. Um, it's a lifestyle of obviously kind of deep devotion. Um, but you've got to be really strong and dedicated it's not an easy lifestyle in any way no absolutely uh, moving on to one of the things that is a major recognition of your artistry and that's the sony award which is the equivalent mm -hmm. of winning an oscar well <laughs> i'm not sure about that but anyway, it's nice to think of it in that way <laughs> can you tell us about the sony award and yeah what it meant to you and what yeah. you... Yeah. I mean, competitions are funny because I've won a couple of big competitions now, which is obviously, you know, wonderful and it's real. It feels like at the time it's great validation for your work, um, which which it is, especially when they say, you know, we've had 350,000 entries this year and they always make a big thing about how many people have applied or entered. Um, but also I'm aware that there is definitely an element of luck involved in competitions. So in 2018, I did win the Sony World Photographer of the Year Award with the X-Photo work, which um, I hadn't entered into. I think I'd only entered maybe a couple of very small competitions before then, and I'd never entered the Sony before. So that was a huge shock. You kind of get told that you're in your category, then that you've won your category. And then it's not until the big night at the, uh, at the Hilton Hotel, which is black tie event, you know, with like hundreds of people there, like fancy dinner, all the lights flashing. And then the guy from Sony Japan kind of announces the Photographer of the Year Award. And that was me. So it was all, um, all very surreal, actually. Um, and I did win some prize money, which being a kind of broke photographer, because film is so expensive now as well. Everything about shooting on film is the processing, the film itself. And then there's the travel. Like it's it practically impossible to make a living really from your own work now, your own projects. So winning a kind of chunk of money, which probably didn't even pay for the whole project, I'm sure, over a number of years. It's too depressing to add up what I actually spent on that project. But, um, you know, winning money and the exposure you get through those competitions is fantastic. So, you know, without a doubt, people suddenly knew about my work. I think that's why Goss were interested in publishing the book. Um, I got asked to do loads of talks and lectures. What I didn't get was really any commissions or or paid work. <laughs> so, and that's the same with when I won the Taylor Wessing, which is the big portrait award, which is run by the National Portrait Gallery. It's an annual portrait award. And that's a funny one because it's very prestigious. And for years and years I'd entered and always been kind of rejected at the last round. And then I got one picture in and then I won overall for the Lost Summer series about, about the teens whose proms had been canceled. But that was another thing where it's brilliant at the time um, and people kind of know your name and you get a lot of respect in the industry. But it doesn't actually, you know, the phone wasn't like ringing off the hook with great commissions for me at all. Um, not at all. So, you know, wonderful for exposure, wonderful for just getting your work out there, which is great because it's very hard often to even get your work seen in photography. It's so competitive. Um, but it didn't really make a lot of difference in terms of um, kind of financially or I didn't get loads of interesting commissions all of a sudden. So it works in kind of strange ways. <laughs> so Alice, I have a couple of more questions. Yes. 
And then, if that's okay, I'd like to throw the arena, as it's as it were, open to you to add anything or maybe subtract something. Who knows <laughs> from what you've said? You okay. Know, things we haven't discussed that you would like to comment on. So the first of my two questions is to ask about commissions. What sorts of commissions you get? What are you open to? What are you not open to? Um, well, because think... remember, you have an audience here of at least thirty. <laughs> All commissioning, great photography. Work. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, They're um... movers and shakers from across the globe. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I mean, I'm open to you know, I'm open to everything. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I did. Well, it's difficult because my levels of enthusiasm, to be honest, for commercial work and is quite low now. So I used to, like when I first met you, I was racing around America and Europe doing loads of travel guides for Time Out, for instance. Yeah. Which was great. And in my 20s, that was fantastic. It was exciting. It was terribly paid, but it was exciting. It, I was very, I had to be very independent. I had to be very resourceful when I was making that work. Um, it was a bit of a dream job, really, as a photographer starting out in your 20s. Um, now, you know, there's hardly any travel guide produced, not books anyway. You can get everything you need online. So this is a big problem in the photography industry that the big stories aren't being commissioned anymore in the Sunday supplements. For instance, um, advertising budgets have been cut massively. So I'd say there are a, a small number of advertising photographers who remain extremely successful, but the big jobs all go to a, a kind of small group of people. Um, so I don't really do that many commissions anymore. Um, I think more photographers are having to, if you like, pivot. Um, so a lot of photographers, I do teaching, I do mentoring. I sell prints through my gallery called Hackleberry Fine Art in London. They take my work to fairs in New York and um, Asia and other parts of, of America. So that's a way to sell work. Um, but I'm doing a lot of different things. I used to have a lot of work with stock libraries, they're kind of um, fading out a bit now. So it's about having to kind of adjust, not adjust your skill set, but look for different ways of making a living because it's becoming increasingly hard. So much as I'm open to kind of all commissions, really, although I have to say I, I, I'm quite glad I'm not doing weddings anymore because I became a quite a successful as a wedding photographer about 10 years ago and ended up doing a lot of kind of B-list weddings well with some a-list celebrities i will say um but that is a world i don't miss it was such hard what about work. divorces are you open well this is a there's a whole other i think there's a whole other um yeah kind of niche there potentially but what a divorce party yeah people yeah. have especially yeah. feminists i think <laughs> might celebrate that um, I think that will probably be a lot more fun actually <laughs> So my my last question is about technological change. You mentioned the fact that you introduced these chavs or chavos, chavas, slightly gentler version in Spanish, to basically putting yourself into a cape like you were photographing Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War <laughs> and how amazed and uh, attracted they were. Mm by this, pardon me, for them, anachronistic technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could you comment on whether there are pluses or minuses with the digital? Mm -hmm. And could you comment also on the fact that we now all fancy ourselves as photographers and yeah. not just producing appalling slide nights of holidays? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can take, you know, the reality is you can take really great pictures on an iPhone now. They're mm -hmm. high resolution. You can make all the adjustments. Um, it's not, it's becoming increasingly harder to see the difference between an iPhone, you know, image and a digital, you know, an expensive 35 mil digital camera image, for instance. Um, so in a sense, obviously, photography is becoming more democratic, if you like. But I'm kind of desperately trying to hang on to the analog side of work because for me, and I've worked with digital a lot, a lot of my commission or commercial work, particularly the work I used to do, that was all digital. Um, mm. And certainly there was a huge digital revolution that changed 
pretty much every photographer's workflow we had to i remember when time out called me and they said oh we don't want you to shoot on black and white film or slide anymore so i used to shoot on transparency on 35 mil slides they said we want you to you know we're moving to a digital workflow and i just thought shit i don't know how to use a digital camera i don't know how to use photoshop i don't need i don't I don't know how to use all the software you need. And I resisted it for a while, but in the end I had to go with it because that was, that was the way they were working. That was what they demanded. So I couldn't have said, well, I'm going to continue shooting film because they'd have just been like, well, see you later. Um, So obviously I've had to adjust in that sense. And there are, there are great pluses about people who perhaps don't have, um, you know great knowledge of photography or in some ways skills but it's opened up photography certainly but of course now we've got the problems of AI coming along and how's that going to affect the industry and photojournalists you know is photojournal are photojournalists is there still truth in their work not if they're creating images on AI I mean it's becoming very complicated I mean for me I'm old school and there is nothing for me that matches the excitement and anticipation of developing film or being in the dark room and that alchemy and that magic that comes with that and I think as long as I can afford to shoot film and they keep making film um for me it's on it's unrivaled like when I work on my personal projects there's this great sense of kind of trepidation I don't really know what I'm going to get back on the contact sheets but I love that element of surprise and that is still something that I kind of I thrive off I like I love that sense of not quite knowing is a picture going to work out or not but when you look for example at the magnificent background behind me oh it's beautiful see, yeah that's the beautiful work of seascapes. an artist yeah digital or analogic right <laughs> but it just shows that anyone can take a decent picture these days <laughs> okay uh, well thanks a lot so uh <laughs> Moving on to this issue or this opportunity, should you wish to add something or subtract something, Alice? Because your work is so rich, it's everywhere. And actually, I should say, if anybody goes to my website, tobymiller.org, Alice took fantastic photographs. Yeah, they're they're a few years old now, aren't they? Shut up. (laughs) They're date bait. What are you talking about? Uh, Yeah. They're not working very well. But Alice took really uh, wonderful photographs oh. of me, uh, which did <laughs> a kind of injustice to their subject in that they elevated him to something he's not. <laughs> but uh, it's there. So um, is there anything you'd like to add, something we haven't touched on, Alice, might be about your work, or it might be something else that you'd like to chat about for a moment now? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's difficult because I sometimes do, I spend a lot of time thinking, what is my work really about? Which is maybe a bit self-indulgent. Um, but I do want to be, I feel like, particularly the background I was brought up in, that I want to be making some kind of contribution to people. And, you know, I'm not a human rights activist and I'm not a A&E doctor. But I do really hope that people get something from my work even if they just stop and think and it makes them think about their own lives and perhaps what what matters so for me that's really important that something resonates in the work and it won't with everyone I mean I've gone on to made the mistake of going on to a few of those kind of slightly geeky nerdy photography forums and stuff and you know I've, I've read some not particularly nice things about my work um so I understand not everyone's going to get it but if it can resonate with some people and I also know that some people I've had a couple of really lovely emails from particularly from one guy who used to go to Lourdes as a sick as a sick boy because he had polio and um he said I can't remember the exact words and I wish I could because it was when I got it I kind of like took kind of like took an intake of breath because it was so beautiful he said and he said something like you know Lourdes didn't make me better going on pilgrimage didn't make me better but art does make me better and he said that when he looked at not just my images, but certain photographers, including some of my ex-voto images, there was something in him that just made him, yeah, feel okay. Um, and when I got that email, I was like, well, ho- hopefully then if, you know, I can't wish for more in one sense, if that, if that, if my work in some ways makes people think that way, then that's for me, yeah, that's kind of an incredible privilege to be able to make work that, 
that resonates in that sense. So that was something. And then something that I thought you might find find quite funny as well, going back to the um, work in Lourdes, um, is that I <laughs> I had a very strange experience whereby I was obviously spending a lot of time walking around with my big, large format 5.4 camera on a tripod <laughs> in parts of uh, Lourdes. And I actually got flashed out on the Chemin de Croix, which is the very... <laughs> People do the kind of um, the, the rounds there or the, the different stages of the cross um, by a man who looked like a kind of 70s version of Jesus with really long hair and like aviator shades. And then had this kind of it turned into a farce because then I reported it to the police station and it all went completely ridiculous. And they asked for like um, a very detailed description of what he did and what he looked like. Um, and I remember I, I called my mum because my French was really bad as well. So I didn't know if I was really giving them accurate information. And I, I thought my mum was going to freak out and she just found it completely hilarious. So I was like, oh, thanks for your support. Um, and then apparently they told me that he had actually been um, he'd run away from a psychiatric institute in Toulouse. So so anyway, that was an unusual experience. I wasn't expecting that to happen oh. on a sacred site. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I thought he'd. What a horrible experience, really. Well, I mean, it wasn't pleasant, but it's quite, it's it's actually quite a funny story. Yeah. Well, I'm glad your mum enjoyed it. Yeah, mum seemed to think it was, I know, I phoned her for like this great kind of sympathy. And she Emotional just sisterly really, support. Yeah. She said, you've yeah. got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah, she just thought it was really funny. <laughs> because oh, anyway so that was that was an unexpected experience, but you know. All kind I of think one of the stuff. things about what you do is that it is, uh, ethnographic and artistic and those really are the mm. two wings mm. of culture flapping yeah and definitely the time. ethnographic side also yeah comes from my obviously interest in studying anthropology and that all ties together so um i do spend a lot of time just looking and thinking and observing and those are three elements that are really important to my practice and to me i, I think I think the element of time is something that's come mm. from most powerfully today for me. Dedicated yeah. time, years. Oh, yeah. My projects take years. And I'm not really, I, I often feel I'm not getting anywhere with them unless I'm really committed to them. And also I'm reading a lot about, you know, I'm, I'm reading around the subject a lot and I'm reading poetry and literature and watching films. So it's all those kind of cultural connections are made. Mm-hmm. You go deep. Well, Alice, thank you so much. I've got a suggestion, which is that maybe when the film is finished Mm -hmm. and out, perhaps you and your co-director might come to the pod. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. And and we could have a conversation uh, and anybody else you wanted. Hopefully it should be next year at some point, yeah. That would be wonderful because, (laughs) you know, obviously I've I've not seen the final, but but I've seen it in, in general yeah i found it incredibly moving and powerful and oh, i think it will have a profound effect on anybody fortunate enough to see it and that would be great and the other thing i thought of was that it might be interesting to get you and some other photographers together virtually uh to talk you know friends of yours or colleagues or whatever to talk about what's changed what's changing what you hope for do you know what i mean uh, because there are so many transformations going on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of everything from commissions through to publishing, yeah, through to prizes, through to technologies. Well, we I mean, a kind of collective of five photographers, five female photographers, a kind of unofficial collective, and they all make really incredible and interesting work. So that could be that could be good. Well, if you don't mind having a, you know, a sixty-five-year-old interloper. <laughs> into your gal, uh, gal pal. I think they'd allow it. You know, as long as it's just on Zoom, you know. Yeah, I'll have to run it by them and give them a yeah, bit of right. warning. Well, but, you yeah. could tell them that, you know, I'm, you, you're my old roommate. <laughs> okay. You know how to control my yeah. <laughs> moods. But uh, seriously, that would be great. So mm-hmm. please bear that in mind. Uh, and I deeply appreciate speaking to you. It's always, apart from anything else, fun speaking to you <laughs> because you're a, a friend from over many, many, many years, many different contexts. Yeah. But also because your work is so profound, it's so moving, and, you know, it's got nothing on the 
backdrop that I took. No, obviously, yeah. But, you know, starting from a high point, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. It's, it's seriously oh. brilliant work. And in a pathetic way, I can honestly remember waking up and seeing you'd won the Sony prize. And I think I wrote to you and said, congratulations. Oh. But I actually felt pride if oh. not just a friend. That's really the, sweet. Thank it you. It really, you know, cast its, its luster onto me just as somebody who admires your work and, and cares for you and has oh. learned much from you. So thank you very much, Alice. Oh, I thank really you, Toby. That's kind. Thank you for having me.